Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly for another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We're going to delve deep into Bitcoin this week. We're going to talk Bitcoin, then we're going to talk a little bit about the Wells Fargo Asset Management Sale. First off, how you doing, Bruce? How you been? I'm good. It's it's warming up here in New York. It hit 50 degrees this week. So oh, nice. That's we're very a... happy. The snow is melting, and the garbage is being revealed. You know, under the <laughs> under the snow in the in the streets of Manhattan, and uh, my kids can get outside. You know, and run around the playground again a little bit. All right. So good. Good to hear that melt is coming. We're welcoming now uh, Chris Kuiper, an analyst at CFRA. Yes. Chris has done some extensive research on the uh, Bitcoin space. I've, I've talked to Chris a couple you times. You like this guy, Jeff, right? Uh, yeah, he's, he's smart. He's, as they say up in Boston, he's smart, smart. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, Chris, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks for coming. Great. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I want to start with some real basic stuff here, okay? Because Bruce and I, we're, we're kind of... Uh, we're we're kind of basic when it comes to Bitcoin, but we're we're curious like a lot of the financial services industry. I'm gonna share a quick story with you. I remember about 10 years ago I was talking to David Cantor at a conference down in Florida and he was bragging to me about his Bitcoin had gone up to fifteen hundred dollars. I think it's now close to sixty thousand or something like that. I I know that every time I start to think about buying it, it goes up another thousand dollars. So you're all welcome <laughs> for that. But um I don't own any. And uh, I did write recently about an ETF that is in Canada that is offering exposure to regular Joes like me. But Chris, what, give us the kind of the, the 30,000 foot level on, on this Bitcoin business, if you will. Yeah, well, where does it come from? Who uses it? You know, where, I mean, my concern about it is that it's a, you know, you hear frequently that this is a place where drug dealers and other nefarious people can hide assets and the like, or launder money, you know, is that something that the main street type of advisor or client wants to get into? Sure. Thanks. Uh, so Jeff and Bruce, you, you hit a lot of the, the things that swirl around Bitcoin. You know, it's uh, some people treat it like a, like a penny stock to try to get rich from. Other people are looking at it skeptically saying, I know this is used on the dark web or every time there's a ransomware attack, they always demand Bitcoin to be paid with it or other uh, illegal or nefarious purposes. So so we'll try to put all that aside a little bit and and start with the basics here. Where did it come from? It came from an idea. Someone in, in 2008, October 31, by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto, wrote a white paper and they said, hey, we've got the internet. The internet's great at transacting digitally. I can send you pictures and photos and files. But I can't send you you money over the internet. I, there's no e-cash or digital cash version. I can give you a dollar in the real world and we're done. We don't need anyone else. But as soon as I go to the internet and I try to send you money, all of a sudden it takes days and I got to involve Visa or my bank or PayPal or, or some other third party that we trust. So the, the white paper is only nine pages long. I, I encourage everyone to just go and read it because the first couple of pages are actually very accessible. They just lay out this problem. So it started as an idea and they said, hey, let's, let's try to make this, I think I've solved it. Let's try this thing called Bitcoin. They coded it up with, with code. So Bitcoin is just software. It's just code. And one of the things that's really confusing about it is I like to tell people, you know, break it down into two things. And, and this is what confuses people. Bitcoin, the word, can actually refer to two things. It, they can refer to Bitcoin, the code, the network that operates as a payment system. 
And they can also refer to Bitcoin, which are these digital tokens that are native to the network. So when you say Bitcoin's trading at $50,000, you're referring there to the token, whereas other times people are referring to the network. So that's what, what gets confusing. Sounds confusing. Uh, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> and, and again, it's like the early days I of the internet. I think most people mean the token, though, right? Exactly. Yeah. Most people do mean the token, but it, it, it does kind of show why this is hard to get your hands around. It's kind of like when the internet started, everyone said, you know, what is this? And people thought it was nothing new or a fad and other people saw huge potential. And I think that's kind of where we're at with Bitcoin today. What is, uh, t- talk to us about how somebody would get started. Cause all I hear is these horror stories about people losing their passwords or throwing away their hard drive. And suddenly that's your, all your millions of dollars. Yeah. Our old, remember our colleague, Ryan Neal, our former tech reporter, he had a, he had a hard drive somewhere or a, or a stick or something with a tiny bit of Bitcoin on it that he couldn't find. And that was two years ago or something when it was, you know, had yeah. peaked at 16 grand. Uh, and then it had, had retreated back, you know, down to one or two or 3000, whatever it was. But maybe that little, that tiny bit of Bitcoin, it, now that it's at 50 grand, you know, an all time high or thereabouts, uh, maybe that little bit of Bitcoin that Ryan lost is really worth something. Yeah, it could have paid off that hippie's student loans for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't have to pay them off. So Chris, what what about that? I mean, how? I mean, do you have to be a mad scientist to buy this stuff and find it and hold it and all that stuff? Yeah. Again, you know, it might sound cliche. I'm going to make a lot of references to the internet. When the internet first started, it was hard to use. It was cumbersome. You could really screw things up. You know, obviously there wasn't kind of real money involved like Bitcoin, but the user interface got better. The security got better, and that's what we're seeing with Bitcoin. So. Going back to to Bitcoin as the asset, the token, there's there's these digital tokens that move around the network and I can send them to you and and people are treating it like money. And these Bitcoin tokens are are a lot like money. You can buy them, you can exchange them, you can send them, receive them, uh, just like money. But unlike money, there's no company or central bank or government or, or any regulation on these or backing it. So it really is. There's nothing backing it, right? Except for the belief that it has value. Exactly. But but to get to your paper money is the same thing, basically. The dollar bill is only worth the dollar bill because people believe it's worth the dollar bill. Yeah, yeah. And we can get to that. To to answer your question about the security, you know, if you want to hold Bitcoin yourself, what they call self-custody, you can create a a wallet, a digital wallet, and then the digital wallet has a a public key and a private key. And so the public key is kind of like your email address. I could give (laughs) you my public key and I'd say, send Bitcoin to this address. Uh-huh. But the private key, I, I don't want anyone to see my private key. And that's the only thing that, that links me to that ownership of Bitcoin, that I have that key. So if you choose to hold the Bitcoin yourself, that has advantages. No one can steal them from you. You know, no one can, you know, maybe they won't see that you have them. But then it has the risk that, yes, if you lose the key, there's no lost password button. You can't go to anywhere. But today, that, again, like the internet, it's getting better. The most common way people get exposure to Bitcoin is to go on to an exchange, and open an account, just like they would an online discount broker. So if you open a Fidelity or Schwab account, you can do the same thing by opening an account at you know the largest one, Coinbase, for example. They're going to go public here pretty soon. You create an account in a few minutes. You uh, link up your bank account. You buy Bitcoin. In that case, Coinbase holds the keys. So there is a lost password option for you. There's two-factor authentication, all that kind of stuff. 
So they're going to take care of the security for you. Now, you have to trust them in this case. That is the flip side of this. You can't trust yourself. But, you know, and they're again, going to be a public things, company. Yes, they just released their S1 today. They're going oh. to do a, a direct listing, Coinbase. Yep. I think oh, they're wow. rumored to be valued around $100 billion. Holy mackerel. Are you kidding me? $100 billion? Wow. That's a lot of Bitcoin. Jeez. I'm sorry. I just fell off my sofa here. Oh, <laughs> it's you know. it's a new it's uh, a new world. They're they're one of the, the first one of the one of the largest. So yeah, we, we could definitely see some interesting developments here. Have, have they said how much like assets they have already or or something? What do they place that hundred billion valuation? Uh, that on? was yeah, I think that was off of a recent funding round. I'm I'm not sure. That's the number I uh, the latest number I saw thrown around. They did disclose their their AUM in terms of you know Bitcoin and cash right. that, that they hold in other cryptocurrencies. I forget what that number is. I'd have to look it up, but billions of dollars there as Whoa. well. So, okay, sorry. Yeah, about they're going to be up there with the big leagues like a Nasdaq or a CME right. or a, right. you know exactly. Yep. Jeez. Chris, Chris, we've already alluded to the fact that you know the U.S. dollar is is really not pegged to anything anymore, and it's just a pretty much everybody. If everybody believes a dollar's worth a dollar, then we're good. But how do you apply that same principle to? cryptocurrencies. When we here at Investment News, we have an editor who I won't name him, but his name rhymes with the words Paul Curcio. And, um, <laughs> and, and he he thinks that Bitcoin oh, my is Mercio. just the <laughs> biggest scam joke, rip off everything. He hates it. And, you know, when you hear him talk about it, or when you hear some <laughs> of these critics talk about it, you can kind of say, yeah, it does sound kind of ridiculous that you buy this imaginary coded thing online and you put your money into it and everybody tells you it's getting more and more valuable. And then someday for whatever reasons, it's less valuable and some days it's more valuable. I mean, how do you get through to the staunchest critics? And I mean, not that it matters, you're always going to have skeptics and everything, but you know, how do you explain it to them that it's a real thing? Yeah, I mean, you you alluded to it previously. The U.S. dollar is not backed by anything. So if you think it's weird that people buy Bitcoin, you know, is it weird that we uh, attribute value to little pieces of paper with dead presidents on them? What it gets down to without getting, you know, into the rabbit hole here is you eventually end up asking yourself, well, what is money? And money is just an abstraction, right? It's It's something we use to substitute value. Without money, we would be bartering goods that we have for goods that we want in a direct way. But money, of course, opens up the whole indirect barter where we don't have to find someone that has the eggs that we want that also want have the that they want the chickens we have or something like that, you know, so Mm -hmm. money is a wonderful tool, but it is an abstraction. And so you start to ask, well, what makes good money? And if you look at history, and what economists and historians have looked at, they said, well, money the thing that arrives uh, that surfaces to the top as money typically has a lot of similar properties. And so, you know, we've seen shells and beads and furs and all kinds of things being used as money, but good money is durable. It doesn't rust or rot. It doesn't lose its purchasing power. You can divide it easily. You can, uh, it's portable. It has a high unit, uh, high value to, to weight ratio. You can authenticate it. It has a good track record. You start going down all these properties, and I do this in my report, and you say, wait a minute, gold fulfilled a lot of those roles, but Bitcoin actually fulfills all those roles of gold and then some. Bitcoin is, is more auditable. You can always check the network and make sure your Bitcoin is genuine. And quite 
key to all of this is Bitcoin, especially versus our fiat currencies, is scarce. It's scarce. It's not only scarce, but it's also finite. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. It has a pre-programmed inflation schedule. So again, how do you, how do you get to the staunchest of critics? It's like, well, do you think a portfolio needs a hard currency at times? People would flee to the Swiss franc. Well, Bitcoin's the hardest currency on the planet. Right. It's only, it's only inflating right so now. There's only 21 million units? There's only ever going to be 21 million. It's stipulated in the code. The code is open source. Anyone can look at it. And right now, by the end of this year, 90% of that supply will have already been released. So the inflation rate goes down every four years. Right now, the inflation rate's about 1.84, 1.85%. That's going to get cut in half again in another three years. So against our macro backdrop, especially where you see the, the, the money inflation uh, that all these central banks are doing, people are you know, looking at Bitcoin saying, hey, maybe this has a role in a portfolio. Well, what about other cryptocurrencies, though? You talk about the 21 million Bitcoin, but you got, I think this thing, maybe you and I talked about it, Chris, this Doge. How about iced tea crypto? You got, Remember that? Like, when Doge A year coin. or two ago, Jeff, when was that? When people were re- publicly traded companies were renaming themselves crypto yeah, or something. Not, and I'm talking about Long Island like, iced tea became a $50 stock or $100 stock overnight or something like that. I'm talking about like Dogecoin. That thing was created on a ho- on a hoax i think in in 2003 and now it's like a real cryptocurrency i mean i don't understand how they can keep just rolling these things out yeah great great question because people hear the 21 million and they say but there's also a thousand other cryptocurrencies anyone can make one the code is open source you you can make a bruce coin you can make a jeff coin whatever you want i can make a chris coin and it's a good it's a good point i think it's a risk if something better comes along, people could jump from Bitcoin to the better currency for whatever reason. Maybe it has more features. Maybe it's got something else that they desire. But the proponents of Bitcoin in response to that say, well, Bitcoin was the first. It's got the name recognition. It's 60% of the entire crypto market. And it stayed there or above that for a very long time. So it's got the track record. And the biggest thing it's got going for it is the network effects. You know, mm-hmm. uh, to similar example, I could make my own Wikipedia. Wikipedia's source code is, is open for anyone to use. But nobody would come to my Wikipedia because the switching costs are too high. And so the same thing with Bitcoin. They say, well, everyone's got all this infrastructure and, and computing power already in Bitcoin. They're going to have something else is going to have to come along that's so much better that they would give up and lose all of that to switch, that it would be worth it. So I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying those are the arguments for why Bitcoin would remain king. Right. Bitcoin can remain king, but it kind of already is happening that you're seeing these variations of it, correct? Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is, I want to know is, should financial advisors be looking at Bitcoin as an investment or a currency? Or both or neither? There you go. That's a four-part question. That's only a professional <laughs> journalist can do that. He chopped that one up, yeah. my friend. Holy smokes. Take on that one, Chris. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll answer your question with a little story. I, I've been researching Bitcoin since 2012, personally. And now this is colliding with my professional work, which is, which is excellent. But years ago, I read this uh, little analogy from, I think his name was Spencer Bogart on the internet. And he said, you know, the question is, what does Bitcoin and the platypus have in common? And uh, the answer, uh, before I tell you the answer, I'll tell you the story of the platypus. When European naturalists and scientists discovered the platypus in Australia in the late 18th century, they sent back 
to Europe, to their counterparts, a description and even a drawing. And their counterparts thought it was a hoax. They thought it was a joke. They said, so you're saying there's a creature that looks like a mammal. It's got fur, but it's got the, the bill of a duck. It's got kind of a beaver tail and otter-like feet. Yet it's almost like a reptile because the female lays eggs and the male has a, a spur on the back of its leg that can inject venom. Obviously, this is a joke. They asked for a, a sample. They sent him a pelt of it. And they still thought it was a joke. They said this is a work of a skilled taxidermist who has sewn together a bunch of different animals. <laughs> and so the answer to the question was the what does Bitcoin and the platypus have in common is they're both category creators. The platypus is the only species in its family and genus. And so is it a is it a duck? Is it a mammal? Is it a reptile? It's kind of none of them and little parts of all of them. Is Bitcoin a payment network? Is it a platform? Is it a commodity? Is it a currency? Is it digital gold? It's kind of all of those things, but not one of them. And so I think if you're looking at Bitcoin, the asset, the token, the best way to look at it is as an alternative currency or a commodity, but it's a currency that has a programmed inflation schedule. It's scarce. It's got all the properties of gold. So maybe you could call it gold 2.0. And in terms of you know whether it deserves a position in your portfolio, well, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to give any investment advice, but I will just say, if I told you there was an asset that's completely uncorrelated to everything else, and remember, that's the holy grail of finance to find these uncorrelated assets so you can potentially lower your risk. You have an asymmetric return potential. It can only go to zero, but this thing could 2x, 3x, 5x, 10x yet. And you know it's already been around for 12 years. In the last 10 years, it's gone up on an average of 200% a year, Kager. Do you think that deserves 0% in your portfolio? It might deserve at least one or two. I don't know. <laughs> That's kind of how I would look at it. No, I, I, I look at it the same way. And I can't wait until there's some kind of a ETF to, for people like me to, to access it as opposed to trying to figure it out the more complex. And there's way. not right now, Jeff, is what you're saying. There's no mutual fund or ETF well, that we There's can... one in Canada. And there's a couple that are that are trying to push their way through the SEC in the U.S. But talk to us about that one in Canada, Chris. I know you and I have already talked about it, but it seems to have really hit the hit the decks running, and um, it's it's been popular. It's only a couple of weeks old, but it as you and I discussed, this could be the thing that forces the SEC to, I guess, relax the reins a little bit on allowing something like this in the U.S. Yeah, I I think it's only a matter of time in the U.S., not not if, just a matter of when. So Canada beat us to it. They've got a true Bitcoin ETF. We don't have a true Bitcoin ETF, one that, you know, creates and redeems shares. We've got, you know, some kind of proxies like, you know, we've talked about the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which people kind of use as an ETF, but it's not a true one because it can trade at huge premiums or maybe even a discount every now and then. But yeah, it's only a matter of time, I think, before it comes comes to the U.S. as well. Right. What do you think that this this eventually replaces cash the way we know it now? I mean, I I'm I'm kind of channeling my wife on this one because she thinks you know once we get rid of cash and go all digital, it's the end of days and stuff like that. And so <laughs> if it is the end of days, I'm I'm definitely refinancing for like a longer mortgage stuff like that. Just want to brace myself. Yeah. I got to pay for my kids' college yet, Jeff. <laughs> Not yeah. if it's end of days, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I think we've already we don't believe in that up here in the big city oh, in Manhattan. Okay. <laughs> I think we've already seen digital cash coming and it's going mm -hmm. yeah. only going to accelerate. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I cover a lot of the payment companies, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal. 
Uh, they're all going to QR codes and digital cash. But whether Bitcoin becomes that, I think, is a different question. Yeah. Again, Bitcoin, the payment network, Bitcoin's narrative has evolved. People got really excited in 2014, 15 about Bitcoin as this new payment network to replace Visa and all that. Bit- but it's a commodity. But it's Bitcoin, not a Well, the payment. network I'm talking about, remember, it's kind of two different things. So there's Bitcoin, the network. I think Bitcoin, the network, you know, it's going to stay the network how it is. And as a payment network, it's kind of slow. So you're going to have something either on top of that. There's something out there called the Lightning Network, or you're going to have other innovations to improve that speed. But I think you're always going to have government currencies. The US dollar will probably be, go digital. And then Bitcoin is still going to be that, that kind of digital gold. And so that, that's what could underpin higher value transactions or you know, big settlements, that sort of thing. What are you seeing? Uh, I see you know, reports regularly about big companies like Fidelity. Now, I guess they're providing access to Bitcoin. I don't know if they're accepting any payments in Bitcoin. But this is, again, another thing that you... They're going to custody right. uh, Bitcoin, aren't that, they? That's all legitimizing it, right? Yeah. Right, Chris? Yeah, for sure. Do you own any Bitcoin? Yes, full disclosure, I own Bitcoin. <laughs> okay, well, you just convinced me that I'm going to have to figure out a way to buy it. Good for you. 200% a year compound average growth rate. That's, <laughs> uh, that's pretty impressive. I wish we had had this call like 10 years ago, but <laughs> we didn't. Well, he, he only started covering it eight years ago or oh, so. Eight you years know, ago, so. right. So, so where, where is it going? That's a, it's kind of a, we've, t- we've kind of been going over this, this whole conversation, but where, you know, give us a, give us kind of an outlook for this. Not, not yeah. What's the next 10 years, years five or 10 years know, look like? Yeah. What are we going to have? Everybody's going to have Bitcoin in their accounts. They're going to have ETFs galore. And am I going to be using Bitcoin to buy pizza? Yeah, I don't think it's a fad. I don't think it's like Beanie Babies or some kind of collectible or something like that. Um, People don't realize Bitcoin, that white paper published in 2008, solved a computer science problem that had been longstanding for since like the 70s or 80s. So it's not just a, a, a flippant thing. You know, this technology is here. It's here to stay. I don't know if, if Bitcoin will absolutely survive all of this. I personally think it, it will for some of the reasons we discussed. Now, in terms of if you're looking at kind of a price outlook, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to be giving any, this isn't any investment advice or anything, but I do think it helps to put some frameworks around where this could go. And so I talked about how Bitcoin is gold 2.0. If you think Bitcoin takes even 15% of gold's total market, gold's around $12 trillion at $1,800, $1,850 an ounce, that's a Bitcoin price of around $100,000. Mm-hmm. There's also a model out there, you know, we can't get totally into it. It's called the stock to flow model. I remember the stock to flow discussions from my graduate classes in economics of monetary theory. You know, it basically says, why is gold a store of value when other metals aren't? Well, it's because the amount of gold released compared to how much stock there is, the flow versus the stock, there's very lo- little flow. Only two to 3% of, of gold is mined every year compared to how much is already out there. And Bitcoin's the same thing. Its inflation rate is less than 2%. Mm-hmm. So as as Bitcoin stock to flow ratio increases, people might increasingly look at this like a store of value. And so from that perspective, you know, you could see it, it go even in the next five years to hundred, three hundred thousand dollars, depending on, you know, some of the the metrics you look at. But again, I, I do think it is here to stay for a long time. Uh or, and certainly the technology is here forever now. It's it's gonna be like a new protocol, just like HTTP governs web pages. You've got 
this Bitcoin technology, blockchain technology that governs how these payment networks are going to work. I love it. Good stuff. I'm really fascinating. Really glad we had you on here walking us through this because I know our audience is going to learn a lot on this. Hey, where can uh, where can people get your white paper? I I I know you sent me a copy, but it's a PDF. Is there a is there a site people can go to 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 get that and read it? Yeah, it's uh, go go dot research dot com forward slash Bitcoin. Okay, great stuff, Bruce. Do you have anything else for Chris Kuiper? Chris, just say that one more time. The yeah, web address, please. Go.cfraresearch.com forward slash Bitcoin. Uh, or if you go to our website, CFRA Research, uh, you can certainly just uh, request more information on any of this. Sounds good. Yeah, really good stuff. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks a lot. Thanks for so your much, help. Chris. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Investment News Podcast with my colleagues, Jeff and Bruce. I'm Nicole Casperson, and I co host the Tech Stacks Podcast with Sean Alaka. Our next episode is dropping February 25th, and we're bringing listeners an insider look into all things Bitcoin, so you can make informed and educated decisions on the cryptocurrency. Bitcoin jumped from $30,000 to $50,000 in just two weeks. So volatile or not, we've got the information you need to know when clients ask about Bitcoin investing. Tune in for insight from Bitcoin expert Rick Edelman, alongside Fidelity Digital Assets' Ria Batora and Blockchange's Dan Erie. Now, back to the show. All right, good stuff from Chris Kuiper there talking Bitcoin, but we're now going to shift over to the Wells Fargo Asset Management big sale announced, selling to some private equity guys, a $2.1 billion deal to buy that $603 billion asset management operation out of the larger Wells Fargo and Co. What do you think about that, Bruce? I think it's really interesting. You know, people have been puzzling over Wells Fargo, the bank, and then its wealth and investment management unit where the Wells, where the asset management business sat. And it sat alongside its advisor, its its wealth management advisor group, Mm -hmm. right? Wells Fargo yeah. advisors. And so obviously the you know what the excrement hit the fan for Wells Fargo back in 2016 when they came out and said, "Oh, by the way, we've been signing up customers for credit cards without telling them." Yeah. And compensating our employees for doing so in order to cross sell. So it took them a number of years to get the act together where they're doing a full-scale reorganization, which includes selling off pieces of non-core businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Very typical thing that we talk about here and in, in the paper and the Wall Street Journal and all, any place. And so there were some people out there saying, well, are they going to sell the advisors too? Or are they just going to sell wealth management? From my understanding, they're going to really, they want to hang on to the advisors as long as they can because they see it as a winning business, which it is, I think. The asset management business, not so much. And I thought it was very interesting. You particular, Jeff, you've been covering asset managers for 20 years plus, right? Mm -hmm. And just the shift in, in the value on asset management from 20 years ago to now, I think is extraordinary and I think is evidence to this deal. 
Yeah, this is uh, this is interesting and on a number of levels, I think. I mean, they're renaming and going to rebrand the, the company. Right. That says something when you've got an old... And, and Wells is keeping like a 10% well, yeah, nine point. They're going right. to keep nine point nine percent ownership, right. but they're going to get rid of that name, and that says something about what you were alluding to the the troubles that they're trying to you know distance themselves from the, you know, I mean, the, the asset management side wasn't in involved in any of that shenan- those shenanigans, but no. but still, they they feel like the name, the the long and storied brand is not worth carrying it forward. I guess I talked to the CEO over there earlier this week, and. And he said that they're gonna. They might even have a contest internally to to kind of rename the, the operation. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 interesting on a bunch of levels. I mean, the whole asset management industry is being forced, sometimes kicking and streaming into the ETF space. And Wells what kind Fargo, of ETF position do these guys have? They don't have a single ETF. They're they're still oh, not oh. making it like a big priority. They they That's said not good. Man. They want to look at separately managed accounts, and that's a smart move too, because that's really growing in popularity, and that kind of gets them more solutions focused and stuff, and and it kind of works well with financial advisors and stuff like that. So that's that's all good stuff. But I don't know to disregard ETFs. That means you're leaning really hard on active management. Yes, but you know, and we got- know those assets have been dwindling while indexed assets pegged to ETFs. Have been the rage for the past. I mean, 10 they to got some years. smart. They got some smart money behind them. Two different private equity firms basically bought ninety percent of this company. Anytime you hear somebody when they first partner with a private equity firm, they always say, "Oh, yeah, we're not. These aren't short term. These guys are long term." You know, they're they're always. It's like when <laughs> right. you when somebody right. first buys a boat, they're always like, "Oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing ever." But you know what they always say: the the two happiest days for somebody who has a boat is the day they buy it and the day they sell it. You know, these, for sure. these, these, these private equity guys are three to seven years. That's just the model. They've got investors that they've got to, you know, satisfy. Right. But the, the interesting thing about one of the firms we know a little bit about of Reverence Capital, mm-hmm. they own Advisor Group as right. well. So when I was looking at your article and thinking about this, what's the, you know, if they are thinking about boosting separately managed accounts, does advisor group, you know, which has eight or 9,000 advisors or more now, 12,000 or whatever it is, 11, 12,000. What kind of role do model portfolios play at advisor group? Advisor group has, you know, they bought Ladenburg last year and Ladenburg did have its asset management group, but that's tiny in comparison to Wells Fargo. You know, these independent broker dealers like an LPL, which who is the bellwether for the business, they really like these managed money portfolios right? that are kind of a poor man's separately managed account, essentially, that are the mothership, the home office runs, and then the advisors out in the field manage their client portfolios off of. So is there going to be some kind of synergy or connection there? So I think it's pretty interesting. And the guy who runs Advisor Group is Jamie Price. Years ago, he was at UBS, and he's a He's a very bright guy. He's a very smart guy. So he's obviously thinking about, you know, Jamie's the kind of guy who thinks about everything and how it can make the business better. So is he thinking about, is he thinking about that opportunity for them too? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, to me, like I said, the, the, it'll be nice to see or interesting to see what happens to Wells Fargo asset management over the next few years. They're going to have some new leadership, smart people there, obviously private equity 
doesn't just jump in blindly into things, but there's going to be this, this is going to have to either go public in the next five to seven years or be bought by someone else. Well, do you go public? Do you smush it up with advisor group and then have a brokerage, another oh, brokerage asset know. management arm or what? I'm not, you know, I don't know but if just, today, if just think about this, think about this Jeff. Okay. 603 billion in assets under management, right? Right. Wells Fargo asset management valued at 2.1 billion. Focus Financial Partners, which is a publicly traded RIA network, has 250 billion in advisory assets and RIA assets, advisory mm-hmm. assets, right? And a market cap of 3.8 billion at 53 a share. So Focus, which has less than half of the assets, is almost twice as much worth. Wells Fargo Asset Management, according to the marketplace today. So 20 years ago, when I was starting out in this business, actively managed mutual funds and money, that was the sweet spot and where all the money's being made, right? And the value was. Right. But if I if you just compare the valuations of those two businesses, a $600 billion asset management business and a $250 billion RIA network, you can see where Wall Street is putting the value on financial services these days and well, is yeah. clearly on investment it, advice. It's a different business model, too, though. They're both in wealth management, but one is managing portfolios in an area of, of shrinking fees. And one is financial advisors, which mind boggling has been one of the most resilient to fee compression. That's my point. Areas of the space. So, yeah, I, but but that's still, the point, right? Wealth- I mean, who would have thought that 20 years ago? You know, that an RA network, which could never exist, was right. more valuable than a BMF bank's asset management business. Never would have been conceived 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, I, w- I would wager. All right. I That's my you. point. Well, like I said, it'd be interesting to see where this goes with Wells. But these private equity guys, man, I, like Mark Bruno said in your story, I think the private equity players are just, they, they're just charging after these. Financial services assets. They are. Yep. They can't get enough of it. So that's right, interesting Bruce. stuff, man. Yeah. It'll be interesting to watch. And let's uh well, let's see. We'll be with the next by mid year they should have a new name. So maybe they'll be calling it uh <laughs> Tesla wealth management. Or uh, Hawk and Dove. Hawk and Dove. I don't know, yeah. something like that. Who knows? Jeff, that was another great episode of the investment news podcast we want to thank our special guest chris kuyper he's vice president equity research for cfra research we also want to thank steve lamb our very own producer and you can find the podcast of course at investmentnews.com apple spotify google play and stitcher leave us a review on apple please and follow us on spotify you can reach jeff at at benji Ryder and me i'm bruce kelly i'm at pd news guy Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be talking to you next week.